So this has been a week of big feelings. Uh, pretty much everyone I've spoken to this week has been in the midst of... Um, oh, thanks. Go ahead. <laughs> pretty much everyone I've spoken to this week has been in the midst of strong emotions, mostly negative. Uh, a lot of them connected with the national news. Um, and as you show up for Palm Sunday today, um, I don't know what you think you're supposed to feel. Are we still in the sorrow of Lent? Or are we now starting to ramp up toward the joy of Easter? Where are we today? We shout Hosanna and we wave palm branches outside, remembering how the people of Israel were dreaming big dreams. But then right away, we listen to the whole story of the trial and death of Jesus when all of those dreams were blown to pieces. And then the story just kind of ends there. It leaves us there, devastated, with the promised Messiah dead in his grave. Maybe Palm Sunday strikes you as emotional whiplash. Uh, and I'm sure it did for the people who lived through it at the time. But I guess one advantage to that emotional whiplash is that it folds in everybody, right? It folds you in today. Whatever kind of mood you brought in with you today, you don't have to adjust it to find a place for yourself in this story. If you're happy and excited this morning, you're not as happy and excited as the disciples of Jesus who shouted, Hosanna. If you're afraid, you're not as afraid as the 12 apostles when their Lord was arrested and they fled for their lives. If you're angry, then you're not as angry as Caiaphas, the high priest, when he judged the king of the Jews. If you're confused, befuddled, overwhelmed, then you can't be more so than Pilate, who woke up that morning to face a challenge to his leadership that was utterly beyond him. If you're ashamed and disappointed with yourself beyond words, then you're not as ashamed as Simon Peter was when that rooster crowed. And if you're taking a stand for what is right and receiving nothing but hatred and scorn for your efforts, then you have for company the Son of God himself who stands beside you knowing just exactly what that's like. So however strongly we feel this morning and in whatever direction we feel it, the passion narrative of Holy Week includes someone who feels it even more strongly and in the same direction. And so this story that we told again this morning includes each one of us. It includes all of us. It's really our own story. And I call each of us today to take this story personally because it folds you in, whoever you are and whatever it is you're going through. And there's no need to be in any kind of different place than you already are because Jesus will come to you and meet you where you are. And I know this because he does it for absolutely everyone in the story that we just read about, regardless of what kind of mess they were in. When Bev and I were putting that little drama together, one of the hardest parts was casting it, uh, because we had to choose people to play the various roles. And apart from Jesus, there are no good roles in that story. There are only wicked ones. Um, and it's hard to call up your friends on the phone and ask them, hey, will you play the part of Judas? Or Pilate? Or the high priest? Or Peter in his denial? Or a false witness? Or a Roman soldier? Other than Jesus, there are just no good roles here at all. And I wonder, which character in this narrative do you find to be the worst? Who 
is the most despicable of all. Is it Judas who betrayed his Lord to death for money? Is it Peter who talked a big talk until crunch time proved him a hypocrite and a coward? Is it Pilate who carried the sword of justice until, like a jellyfish, he just handed it over to an angry mob against his own better judgment? Or is it the crowds who were so easily led into wickedness by peer pressure and evil leaders? Is it the false witnesses who were willing to stand up and tell lies about a holy man of God? All kinds of scoundrels are on display in the course of this one day, aren't they? And which one do you find the worst? And I ask that because I suspect, if we're really honest, then the character that we find the most objectionable is the one that we're really most like. Or to put it a different way, the one that we could most easily become if our worst demons won out in our souls. So if I myself am tempted to cowardice, then I might find Peter the worst. If I'm tempted to treachery, Judas the worst. Or if I'm tempted to capitulate to peer pressure, Pilate the worst. For me, the character I find the worst in this whole sorry tale is Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest, the man who carried the mantle of national spiritual leadership on his shoulders, who had the unspeakable privilege of being the only man alive to enter into the Holy of Holies and see the Ark of the Covenant and stand in the very presence of Almighty God, the teacher and overseer of all Israel, that he should be so blind, so abusive, and such an abomination to justice makes my soul tremble. And that is why, when we cast that little drama, I chose the part of Caiaphas for myself. It was, the part of my, it was part of my own process of seeing how the seeds of his wickedness are indeed embedded deeply into my own heart. And apart from the saving work of God in my life, I would not be so unlike Caiaphas. There but for the grace of God go I. So I invite you, in the quiet of your own hearts to brave the question, who in this story do I find the chief of all the scoundrels? And here in this sanctuary among these friends and in the privacy of your own heart, it's a safe place to confess to yourself that you would probably not have done so much better in their situation than they did. That apart from the grace of God to help you and transform you, you are more like them than unlike. Lord, have mercy on us. And I hope you're sticking with me so far. I hope you've folded yourself into this story and seen something of your own reflection in it. Because now we come to the turning point. Here's where the very bad and ugly news turns wondrous. Because the next thing we realize in this story is that every single person in this sorry tale was loved. Was loved. Peter was loved. Judas was loved, the soldiers were loved, the false witnesses were loved, the crowds were loved, Pilate was loved, and yes, Caiaphas, even Caiaphas was loved. By Jesus, the Son of God, and by his Father in heaven, they were all loved. How do we know that's true? How do we know that they were loved? We know it because we see it in Jesus' actions on this last day of his life by his patient, steadfast, determined steps down, down, down into the pit of hell. Why was he going down there? It was all for them, wasn't it? 
It was for all the people who sent him down there because he loved them. And Jesus said it himself, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord because God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But also, we see Jesus' love on clear display in this story as he talks to each character personally, one at a time. Did you notice in our little drama that Jesus had a personal word of kindness and truth to almost every character? Even as his own clock ticked down to zero, he was constantly thinking about the people around him, the people who were at that moment failing him. If you want to, you can follow through with me in Matthew's Gospel. It starts in Matthew chapter 26, page 832 of the Church Bibles. Or you can just listen as I go through character by character. Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. So first we have the dozy disciples in Gethsemane. And they failed their Lord by falling asleep on the eve of his great trial. But Jesus came to them three times to gently rebuke them. For example, Matthew 26, verse 40, that he said, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. On the last night of his life, Jesus has concern for them that they would not fall into temptation, even as he himself stares into the abyss of death. Then Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss, and Jesus says in verse 50, Friend, do what you came to do. Even now, Jesus calling him friend? Even now, treating him kindly and gently? To the crowd who came to arrest him, Jesus says in verse 55, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So this is a clear opportunity for them to see their sin, how irrational they're being, and what kind of a wicked plot they've been wrapped up in. It's a clear chance for this crowd to repent. So the love and mercy of Jesus is for the armed mob too. Before Caiaphas, in verse 64, Jesus says, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. For a Bible expert like Caiaphas, this was just gift-wrapped. The warning should have been unmistakable. How calm and patient and kind Jesus appears against Caiaphas, the raving lunatic. And Jesus was loving to Caiaphas too with these words. He loved Pilate in a different way. In front of Pilate, he remained mostly silent while the priests hurled insults and accusations against him. And this silence is what communicated the truth to Pilate because in chapter 27, verse 14, we see that Pilate was greatly amazed by Jesus. And then we find in verse 24 that Pilate had become certain Jesus was innocent. So he too was loved and given every chance to do the right thing. And finally, there's Simon Peter. Jesus had no opportunity after his arrest to talk to Peter directly, but he did warn him solemnly beforehand, and he did forgive him afterwards, after his resurrection. So Peter, too, was loved and ended up being forgiven and restored to his place as a pillar of the church. I think we really have to imagine that even Judas would have been forgiven, just like Peter, for all his sins, if he had only stuck around long enough to repent of them. The love of Jesus is soaked into every part of this drama. 
So that even more striking than the universal wickedness of all the scoundrels is the universal love that their victim had for each one of them. It is holy. It is divine. And that glorious love is what comes to us too today. So I hope that you will admit with me that you are very like the scoundrels in this story. It feels like bad news, terrible news, to have such an identity. But when we see the degree that such wicked people are loved, we become glad to be found in their number. And I hope this news makes you glad, because there's nothing better in the world than being loved like this. And of course, I should add that when we receive this kind of heavenly love, we don't stay wicked. That's part of the good news, too. We love God back, and we allow his love to transform us, to make us into new creations. I hope that now, those of us who are reborn in the Spirit of God would have done very differently on Good Friday than any of the people on display. I hope that we would have stood by Jesus, stuck by his side, testified truthfully about him, and taken whatever punishment came for doing so along with him, because we are now new men and women and not the old scoundrels we once were. But that is a work of grace that he has done in us. It's nothing for us to boast about. So I want to close by reflecting on what all this says to our present pain. We live in a world full of tragedies, personal and national, and they they come not single spies, as Shakespeare said, but in battalions as they came last week. When tragedies come, they cause us grief. And the God of all comfort comes to comfort us in that grief. But I think we should recognize that worse than the grief and more dangerous are the many ways that tragedies present fresh opportunities for us to sin. There are many opportunities to sin that tragedies send. The first temptation they always bring is to the sin of faithlessness. Because tragedies say, God must not see or he must not care, or he must not be able to stop it, or even that he must not exist at all. Tragedies first grieve our hearts, and then they immediately start telling us lies. But such lies are to be utterly rejected, because we know that Jesus is always right there when tragedy comes. He's always right in the very middle of it, just like he was on Good Friday. On the one hand, as he said in Gethsemane, he's able to call down 12 legions of angels to fix the problem instantaneously, but on the other hand, he chooses not to. He chooses instead to enter into the heart of darkness himself and to conquer it from the inside. So don't be faithless in the face of tragedy. In his own time, God will set every wrong to right. The second temptation that tragedies send is to the sin of hopelessness because they tell the story that this world will continue to unravel and disintegrate into chaos before our very eyes and there is no hope. But that is wrong, friend. That kind of hopelessness denies the sovereign power of our God and the work of hope that the Holy Spirit is doing within us right now. Our God has not fallen off his throne He made the world out of chaos, and he commands it into order every single day. It will not unravel or disintegrate by the will of man, but only when God says so. And when God wants to do you good, he will do you good. Yes, at the end of time when he restores all things, 
but also now, today, in your lifetime. So wake up each morning with hope. Hope in the good things that your Father will send to you in this day and for the wonders that you will see in his good world. And hope in the bright future that he has written for you in his book. He has plans for welfare and not for harm. So avoid falling into that sin of hopelessness, which is really getting more and more common in our day, isn't it? Third, we have the sin of hatred. Tragedies in the world can so easily arouse our hatred, can't they? We immediately look around for, who caused this? Whose fault is it? Who am I mad at? All the scoundrels around Jesus on the last day of his life did some of the worst things people have ever done in the history of our world. And in these things, they departed very far from the image of God that was within them and from the design and purpose that God had for them. And yes, it was very bad, but none of it made Jesus hate them. In fact, he still very demonstrably loved each and every one of them. And so I have been personally convicted recently that perhaps the people who commit outrageous crimes that end up on the news depart less from God's own character than I do when I despise them. Because Jesus commanded his followers to love, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And hatred is a sin and one that we're sorely tempted to when tragedy strikes. Now finally, tragedies present to us um, opportunities and temptations to sin related to victimhood. Because whenever there are tragedies, there are victims. And of course, as much as we must not hate the perpetrators of crimes, how much more must we not judge or blame the victims? But instead, we draw near as we are able with love and gentle care. But the creation of fresh victims produces in itself new opportunities to sin. So we remember in answer to these that our Lord Jesus, for all his other titles, is also our world's chief victim of treachery, of injustice, of physical, mental, and emotional abuse, of undeserved violence. He was the victim of all victims. And he used that not as an excuse to hate or an excuse to fight back or an excuse to give up on following his father's will, to stop loving others and just take care of himself for a while. So our Lord Jesus gives us a model of holy victimhood. We need his example because we ourselves are terrified to become victims, aren't we? Actually, in our present cultural moment, that might be the worst thing we can imagine, our greatest fear. Perhaps when we're tempted to anger or hatred or aggressive activism, it's really just to cover up that true, deep, and lurking fear. But we mustn't fear it. We follow Jesus, who became a victim, and a bunch of his early followers did too. And Jesus told us, a servant is not greater than his master. We should not fear to follow a path our Lord Jesus himself has trod. We should fear instead the sins of cowardice or compromise that might make us shrink back from that path. And I know that some here, indeed many here, are victims already. You have suffered this path already for one reason or another. I see you, friends. I love you. Your Lord Jesus loves you. He was there with you when that happened to you. He's gone ahead of you and he goes behind you. 
But he does have a challenge for you too. The challenge is to not use your status of victim as a badge to try to justify sin or self-indulgence. Because Jesus, our chief victim, never did that. And his challenge is not to use the label victim as a pass on your continued discipleship, on your own obedience to the word of God or your service to his people, because Jesus never did that. You were wronged, and he will vindicate you. You were hurt, and he will heal you. But stray not away from your own path of holiness, which is your life. We are, all of us, loved with an everlasting love. So let us live today as children who know the love of our Father.